Hey, this is Charmaine. And hey, this is Ricky of Gray Matters, the blog. This is a replay of one of our favorite episodes from season two. While we're preparing for season three, make sure to check out our Instagram page that's at Gray Matters, the blog, where we will release exclusive content for these episodes and sneak peeks into season three. We hope you enjoy the episode. Hi, everyone. This is Ricky, and welcome back to another episode of Gray Matters. For this episode, we're going to talk about language and identity politics. Hey, everyone. It's Charmaine. Yeah, like Ricky said, we wanted to delve into this topic, and we mention language and identity politics a lot, and so we wanted to kind of provide a framework and definition um, for what identity politics is, what we mean when we talk about language. So language we're discussing more in the terms of the verbiage and how we as a society interpret and discuss these issues. So we felt that there was this necessity to discuss the limitations of language, and particularly in um, where we are situated in the United States and how it connects to identity politics and how people are in quotes perceived um, and its relation to power dynamics in our culture and our society. Now, we are located in the US and so we're kind of situate, situating and grounding these contexts, um, these conversations in a lot of those contexts, but this does have a lot of broad reaching appeal and especially with the kind of like diaspora communities. Um, I think a lot of these conversations relate to post-colonial language and post-colonial societies um, and how kind of their role is interpreted within um, as diaspora within the West, in quotes. And so um, this is a really broad reaching conversation. So I guess like what I mean to say in shorter words is like, it's not only specific to the US or like North American or United like context in the United Kingdom or other English speaking countries, but it has much broader appeal. Um, so there's a lot of different uses and like there's kind of like we talked about this in our intersectionality episode where like there's like modern and misinterpreted or misrepresented uses of these terms so we're going, kind of going back to the roots of what identity politics is and so kind of defining the term so um, identity politics was formulated by black feminist scholar barbara smith and the kambahi river collective who we have mentioned in previous gray matters episodes and it can kind of be considered a precursor of sorts to intersectionality we don't we're not we're saying of sorts because it doesn't have like a complete direct line it's not like it was identity politics and now it's intersectionality we think that kind of representation of the term is a little bit um base reading um, and not a kind of in-depth reading of intersectionality. Um, but inter, um, I, sorry, identity politics discusses lived experiences and how an individual's identity identifying factors. So for example, their race, their ethnicity, religion, gender, sexuality, ability, class, and economic status, among others, influence political agendas and develop organizing based on the outcomes or perceived impacts of interlocking systems of oppression. Um, again, that's against like race, gender, ability, sexuality, economic situation, et cetera, on their lives. So we're kind of looking at the confluence of all these factors on um, kind of based off of a person's um, identity. And while this looks at individual identifying factors, also looks at um, it's kind of connective and in inclusive. And so it looks at how certain, how these situations impact broad communities with these identifying factors. Um, and so it can also be argued, we felt it was important to bring this up, um, that it can be argued that identity politics aims to be inclusive in its organizing and looks at how identity factors and political outcomes of lived experiences. But critics, 
there's a lot of critics of uh, identity politics. They say that it also can, it contradicts um, and can promote co collectivity and division, and it distracts from unity, and it's in opposition to classical liberalism. So we're keeping this conversation with some of those critiques in mind, um, and we're not, you know, we're, we want to present this information as a framework. We're not necessarily like saying like this is the right or wrong uh, blueprint or template, but we want to kind of like ground this conversation in these larger contexts and terms. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And I'm, I'm glad that you brought up the conversation about the critiques of identity politics, because I think one of the functions of um, theory or theorizing or knowledge protection is having the ability to have different critiques, because in a way it it broadens the scope of such, or it, it basically shows the gaps or the I would say like that the, the needs of like inclusivity are for lack of a better word, the not weakness, but the limitations, I should say, of set theory and where you can ex kind of expand to um, further close the gap of those limitations. And I think identity politics is it is important to still discuss because it is relevant to a lot of people's lived experience um, and embodiment of said lived experience based on their identity. Um, and I appreciated your your conversation of bringing that up as we talk about language because identity and language are very interconnected with each other. How we label our identity or how we perform our identity is closely um, aligned with societal languages um, and, and language structures and language barriers. Um, I appreciate this conversation because even this semester in a course that I'm taking, we've discussed a lot about the limitation and, and binaries of language. And it's important to discuss this because language isn't a, um, isn't a general idea. Uh, language is different across the globe. It's also different on a micro level too within communities. And it's very important to discuss the um, ever expansive um, flexibility, adaptability, or also limit, limits to language as well. And one of the limits, one of the limits that I, that we and, and I have been, and that we have been talking about and I've been thinking about a lot is this term white passing. Um, and this might be very, um, what we're about to talk about might be very, uh, to steal from what Charmaine says, divisive, but I think it's a very important conversation that, and it's just one example of the limits of language and how, how language can create binaries. And this was actually inspired by TikTok, which if I can find the TikTok, I will link it to our Instagram page um, as it's tied to this episode when we release this episode. And it was discussing, um, and there was a woman and she was talking about how people tell her she looks like the Kardashians. And she was a woman of color and she got upset because she was saying, um, as a woman of color, to say that she looks like um she she looks like someone who could identify as white she was very just taken aback she was like i don't understand there's also several tips tiktoks where there were women of color 
who were told that they were white passing and they were offended because the term white passing can be very harmful to women of color whose lived experience do not give them set privileges of being white passing or being or they do not exhibit whiteness in a in a way that gives them the privilege their lived experiment experience is an embodiment of their women of color identity or um, BIPOC identity um, and examples of this are um, Meghan Markle the Kardashians and and there's just this wide phenomenon of white passing and what that what entails and this links to identity politics and how we discuss this topic, it is problematic designation given to expand the definition of whiteness. So there's need, there's this need to expand the definition of whiteness and what whiteness look, looks like and who can exhibit whiteness, which aligns, uh, which aligns race and ethnicity with white Eurocentric interpretations and to undermine the experiences of BIPOC communities. So there is this, you, you kind of see this two, two sides of what happened. You have whiteness, which is trying to expand the definition white, but as you expand the definition of whiteness and who can be white passing, you see um, continuous structural oppression of BIPOC communities um, and their identity as well. There's also this kind of layered I don't I don't know how to describe this layered back and forth of of, of a BIPOC person having to prove their race and ethnicity because mm -hmm. everyone else is like, no, you don't, you don't really look like, like your said race, race and ethnicity. You have to be mixed with something or you have to be something else. And that is detrimental to one's lived experience to constantly have to prove your race and ethnicity, to prove your lived experience experiences. And this also connects to how this larger conversation of many white people are getting, um, are having surgery done to white women are having procedures done to be more ethnic looking, right? We see this with, um, there have been many videos about, uh, it's actually a funny video on TikTok or I think it's funny about how, is this a white person or is this, is this a white person with an extreme tan? Or is this a black woman? And oh, when you're yeah. watching this video, you're like, oh my gosh, some of these I completely got the wrong thing, you know? Yeah. And you see not just tanning, but you see um, lip procedures and and all of these different um, procedures done, right? To have these more ethnic features. Whereas the people who naturally embody these features, we're not saying there's anything wrong with plastic surgery, but there is a conversational element that needs to be addressed when the people that naturally embody these features for centuries have been ridiculed, have been marginalized and excluded from the greater beauty narrative because they have these features naturally. But mm -hmm. then someone um, of whiteness can adapt these features to their body and get praise for it. And I think this connects to our conversation about cultural appropriation. The identity of the person who is exhibiting said features or exhibiting said hairstyle is closely connected to societal's um, acceptance of said features or hairstyle or clothes and et cetera. 
And, and that is kind of where you get into the problematic natures of society's lens um, of, of BIPOC women and, and, and lens of in regards to beauty standards, in regards to what's acceptable, what's unacceptable. Um, and I definitely think that that is a conversation um, much needed. Yeah, I, I really appreciate you bringing that because it's like, it's especially when we look at you know, uh, the, the, how should I phrase this? I want to phrase this in a way that and Ricky and I are pausing a little bit in this conversation, because I think both of us are careful of how we're phrasing these, because we don't want to seem exclusionary because we're not the, the aim of this is not to call anybody out or be exclusionary at all. It's just that like, we have to address these issues. And so when we talk about cosmetic procedures, right, again, we're not like, we're not saying anything against anybody that gets them or the procedures themselves, but it's, it, it is very mad that these procedures um, create um, these aesthetically desirable features that are, uh, you know, ethnic identifiable features, but they're only aesthetically desirable when they're on white women. Mm -hmm. And so that perpetuates the, the issue. It doesn't fix anything. It's not making those features more acceptable. It's just making them more acceptable in certain bodies and continually continuing the perpetuation of like women of color questioning their own identities and questioning their own or questioning their own um, beauty based off of like these white Eurocentric beauty ideals and standards that have been very exclusionary to them. And then this whole phenomenon of how it plays into white passing kind of forces women of color to question their own identities. And that in of itself is very problematic. So these, these conversations are very interconnected and the problematic elements are really interconnected as well. And that video that you're referencing, if, if we can find this video, we'll also link to that on our Instagram, but the TikTok, it's it, the extreme of these examples of like, is this a white person or is this a person or is this a black person is like, there's so much like, I think it's called black fishing. I want to say, yeah, wow, I sound fishing. so... Yeah. Thank you. I wanted to say it's blackface to a certain extent for sure. But like, listen to me, I sound so old. I think it's called blackfishing, but um, it's like, I think that is the term. And so it's like the amount and like the extreme, not the amount, but the extreme of blackfishing in these pictures that this TikToker, this creator is like referencing is phenomenal. So you really need to see these pictures to like, see it for yourself. Cause it's not just like a very obvious thing that you would see. And that's why it sounds so like kind of comical and extreme because it is, but it's really like problematic as well. Um, and it's like, this conversation relates to a lot of other things as well, because I especially think white passing has become a really problematic designation that women of color are subject to. And it's also based off of, I've heard of this phenomenon too, where it's called, um, I can't remember the exact terminology it slipped out of my mind, but it's like um, voice and it's related to voice and accent and how like people of color are deemed white based off of the way that they speak or their voice or like you know, not just like code switching or their language per se, but like also just how they speak and how that in of itself has become like a problematic designation. And we talk about this a lot, I think in like social media spaces, we see this um, in like the kind of Gen Z adaptation of AAVE, which is a different conversation, but I think it connects to this as well. Um, but this also connects to what I'm going to call the dilemma that's provided to us courtesy of colonization, um, which kind of brings us back to our language part of this conversation where it's like the framed narratives and limitations of, of 
limitations in language and how we discuss race race and ethnicity is based on imperialist language and narratives. So these are, this is language and narratives that we are attempting to decolonize and dismantle um, through such conversations, but, and through like the larger framework of this, of this, um, of this topic, I would say, but the framing itself. So the framing by the imperialist and, you know, colonialist language and narratives, it accomplishes exactly what it's supposed to. And we see this in white and like the term white passing, because it establishes a limitation of how we are able to discuss and address these concerns while simultaneously silencing the discussion through a critique of the implementation of particular theories like identity politics, intersectionality, the conversations get lost and we start the critique of these theories and like what these theories are actually trying to discuss or prove need like dare I say um, or provide evidence for probably would be more accurate. Um, what these theories are providing evidence for is like sidelined and I think that's really problematic and it's like even the way that we analyze like how is somebody look white is like okay do they have fair skin do they have these particular features do they speak a certain way okay now they're deemed white passing and that's extremely mm -hmm. problematic for the person that that designation has been placed upon and so that's something that connects back to language too and like how we're able to use like the colonial language and the colonial narratives and dismantle them to talk about these issues yeah, yeah. Wow, I think that that is so, um, it's so important what you just said and, and, and who who is given the identity of white passing is very much based on um, like Western Eurocentric like features. And it. I feel like we could have a whole conversation about this because then you get mm -hmm. into the whole like, oh, this person looks like this, so they have to be mixed. And that's yes. not necessarily, like, I don't know how many times people have come up to me and asked me which one of my parents is white. And I'm like, what, neither? Like, <laughs> and you have all of these, like, different layers of our extensions. I, 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 like, not layers, extensions of, um, of the problematics of, of certain like languages or certain terms to describe certain things because then they like extend and expand to all of these different like like I guess segments or, or parts of um of identity and 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 then you get this very binary view of identity and it, it's important for us to think about like how do we have the language to talk about race when that language and lens has been created by whiteness, like you, like you discussed, I mean, like we must sit in and ask ourselves about the language, the language, languages or language that we use on every everyday basis. And as this language is becoming more and more um, used because of social media and different social justice and initiatives, we must think about this. A term that comes to my head is diversity and inclusion. Mm -hmm. Even yeah. that term in itself, and that's being thrown everywhere. Like that, that's being thrown everywhere on a poster, everywhere. If I see diversity and inclusion one more time, I'm going to scream. But we have to think about this. We have to think about the language that we are using, even in social justice reform, even if our efforts are towards a good cause. It's still important to think about the language that we're using. And I think it's, um, and I think it's also interesting about this conversation about white passing and and it's it's part of a larger conversation about how 
in in the U.S. specifically, because we we like we said we're based in the U.S. When we talk about white passing in certain terms, it puts a limit on 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 race and ethnicity to race just being black and white, right? You only have two choices. What are you? And then if you somebody can't like place someone immediately into black or white, you're kind of other, and you're just like mm, don't know what you what you what you are so you're just going to be other right and I think that this duality is extremely problematic for me for many reasons obviously um or not obviously uh, we're going to explain the reasons um but it's very problematic for many reasons such as it, it positions African-American communities people in opposition to whiteness so you see this layer where it's immediately black versus white right and you constantly have this scope where african-americans or people who do identify as black are constantly put against whiteness right um and constantly compared to whiteness and therefore which white passing can be immediately placed on someone easily because there's this constant comparison to whiteness um, and this is important because white, like white supremacy and hegemony completely holds the ideal standard. The ideal standard doesn't change if you completely have this black versus white, because in the U.S. specifically, you're not comparing white to black. You're always comparing black to white, if that makes sense. The, the, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Black communities are the are the are the marginal are the marginalized group, right? Being compared to the group that is the ideal standard, which is whiteness. Um, but it also, like I said before, it also essentializes all non-black, um, you know, all non-black IPOC or IPOC um, looks and and it looks at the groups as like monoliths or as and it limits the dialogue within BIPOC communities, right? So you, you, when you just have this black versus white, like I said before, you completely continue to marginalize people who do not meet um, th those those limited racial identities, right? Um, and yeah. I think that that's an important conversation because if we continue to limit our scope, how are we gonna be more inclusive, right? If, if we limit our scope to just black and white it, it limits our capabilities to be a more inclusive society to the many different facets in between yeah i i agree and i think that's so well stated and it's like it also i think it's important to think about like how we got here and like a lot of people are like well like the u.s you know somehow a lot of people have like kind of separated the u.s from like colonialism or like imperialism and i'm like um hello the wars on terrorism <laughs> um but like it's it's really like a lot of these ideas of of the designations of race and ethnicity are very much influenced by the kind of like modernist social theorists and like darwinists and evolutionary theories um and so there's a lot of problematic elements there um, and that continues to this day. And we see that in the way that we talk about race issues in this country and, and, and also like why it's such a divisive topic and why we have to like really think about this. I think this is a topic that Ricky and I talk about a lot off air, like not recorded, but we really thought about releasing this episode because we had to like frame it in a way that we're like, okay, we don't want people to completely just turn away. Um, because unfortunately that's what 
these kind of conversations seem to do, unfortunately. And so we're trying to present this dialogue and, you know, we do in all fairness and our disclaimer, like we do say that we discuss uncomfortable topics at Gray Matters. So we are going to talk about these issues. Um, and we will link to a few really interesting articles about these topics in, um, on our resources page and our website. And, um, one of the, the articles also talks about like how, um, like, language and how like language is problematic and how it's even, you know, use mental health as an agent of cultural oppression, um, kind of looking at the power of language and, and looking to live within language. So there's a lot of really great articles. We encourage you to, to check out, um, on our resources page as well, but there's another conversation that I read about that I thought was really interesting, um, that kind of connects to this. And it was, um, I read an article, I believe the article is by Sarah Lee, um, and um, she quotes Amanda New New Nguyen in her article, um, and I believe this was on Teen Vogue. We're of course going to link this, and um, again on our resources page on our website. But in this, um, Nguyen's kind of like analyzing and critiquing capitalism and how it looks at um, capitalism doesn't really care to look at. Um, the individual looks at people as commodities. She's talking and specifically in context to the uh, kind of like recent, uh, I'm sorry, I take that back. It's not recent, but the influx of hate and the kind of the resurgence of hate against Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders um, and Pacific Islander Americans um, with like, you know, ever that's kind of like really become more of a topic of conversation due to the coronavirus pandemic. But um, of course, as we know, like hate against immigrant minority groups has been a really a sad part of this nation's history and a sad part of like most colonial imperialist nation's history. But it really made me think about this conversation and how this, our language and how this conversation is framed within the larger framework of capitalism. And a lot of people like, you know, I know that again, capitalism is, it's become very much like a cultural not become, but, you know, especially due to like the American Cold War, it's a part of our history where it's like this kind of cultural war that we wage to, you know, win and be capitalists. And so capitalism does look at people as commodities, as like the worker bees, as cogs in the machine. Um, and then by extension, we, it looks at how these commodities and large groups can be monetized. So I think this also connects to why certain groups are assigned like these archetypal representations. So for example, East Asians are part of the model minority myth and this representation we see of them um, within like Western pop cultural social media kind of um, contexts are like tiger parents or as like crazy rich, rich Asians, like they kind of exist on these uh, weird spectrums. Um, and like, it, it kind of, it also looks at it as like, this is the only way that they're palatable to the Western consumer because remember capitalism. So we have to like look at people through these very specific lenses and these very um, non-representative uh, like platforms and non-representative extremes. Um, and so I think that also connects to this, like based off of that, like Arabs are also seen primarily as terrorists or violent or as rich sheikhs, which is like a newer kind of designation that's been given. Um, and it's a little bit less common, but it's primarily through like this neo-pseudo-liberal lens um, um, where they're also seen, especially Arab, Middle Eastern Muslim women are seen as oppressed who needs saving. Um, hence kind of by reference, like the war on terrorism. And so it kind of justifies this neo, justifies neo American imperialism. Um, and so there's this newer kind of like Dubaiification of the Arabs. And we look at Arabs as like, you know, just 
wealthy, extravagant people who live in the Middle East, kind of similar to like the crazy rich Asian designation. Again, that connects to Orientalism, um, but it's almost welcome in some contexts because it's a response to the characteristic representation that Arabs, Middle Easterners, by some extent Muslims have been subjected to. So it's like, would you rather be seen as a terrorist or like a rich sheikh? Right. So it's kind of like these, again, two extremes, but like, that's what you're given and you got to pick one. And um, again, capitalism, thanks to capitalism, because who doesn't want to be a part of this coveted, wealthy, successful group who have in quotes, like one at capitalism. Um, and in some ways, you rep these representations are very harmful, not only for the sake of representation before the communities who are dehumanized and essentialized in this entire process. And with that, it promotes a continued erasure of people. And I, I said it's like for the like it's harmful for the sake of representation because I've been seeing this a lot on TikTok where like um, people are critiquing people of color like people of color are critiquing other people of color from within their communities and saying if this is representation I don't want it and I think that's so problematic because it's like no no that's not representation that's not what representation actually means that's tokenism that's like kind of what you were saying Ricky with like the diversity inclusion like where it's just like buzzwords and tokenizes certain individuals based off of Western palatable interpretations and stereotypes, which continues to marginalize, further marginalize, demonize, and erase entire communities. Mm -hmm. Sorry, yeah. that was a whole tangent. No. But I hope it all made sense and it was connected. No, we love, I, I love the tangents. I'm all for the tangents. Um, I, I really, if for our listeners, if you don't I think one of the biggest takeaways from this episode is seeing how the binary usages of language connected to a history of imperialism, colonialism creates further like um, polarized views of marginalized communities. And you can apply these to marginalized communities at large. Um, for example, I'm in this transfeminist course and learning more about the LGBTQIA plus community and even how language can um, affect that too. Like what mm -hmm. is seen as um, like who, who can be transgender and who can't, right? And you just see these, these, these layering effects of um, the, the limitations of language. And we're not saying that we shouldn't completely not use language, right? Because we need to have language to help us navigate life and, and, and language can bring us together um, as well. It can create like a unity when it comes to identity and, and different things like that. But I think what we're saying is here, we don't want certain aspects of language to be used to further stigmatize and, and, and um, stereotype marginalized communities that limits them to these polarized um, options, whether that be black or white, whether that be, um, you know, model minority or, um, or whether that be terrorist or, um, or a rich chic, right? Mm -hmm. because because identity and, and especially within BIPOC communities there's so much complex and and, and you know um in-depth identity within an individual that isn't just limited to those two stereotypes and schemas or to those two labels 
And I think that there is an important conversation of where do we go from here, right? Um, we, we always like to present a lot of information, right? But we want to have key takeaways so that you listening, our Gray Matters community at large can have these takeaways and, and apply them to everyday um, life. And I think one of the biggest takeaways I think about is that intersectionality, um, and, and this is a term we've, we've used throughout this episode and many other episodes, we have a whole episode of intersectionality from, was it season one? Season one? I think so. We will check. I think it actually might be from season two. It's from okay. a little bit earlier. Oh, we record think- in advance, everyone. So sometimes yes. we get lost. <laughs> sometimes we get lost. Um, but I think it's from, yes, yeah, season two. Um, if you want, please listen to that episode. It's really helpful in understanding inter- inter- Kimberly Crenshaw's intersectionality, but it also discusses how intersectionality dismantles the binary and creates a space beyond the binary, right? Because intersectionality acts as that tool that in, in, like that investigates those in-betweens, right? And it doesn't just limit people to societals like, um, like single dimensionary view of what it is to be a BIPOC person, right? It's not um, when it comes to like Black women, it's not just the Jezebel and the angry Black woman. It doesn't limit you to those stereotypes and scopes, right? Uh, Now, that's to say we're not saying that as a Black woman, you can't be angry or you can't be sexual, right? But it, it expands beyond those tropes created by um, white Eurocentric colonial society, right? Um, As to what it is to be a BIPOC or marginalized person in their lived experience. Um, But I think there's a larger conversation too about how do we dismantle and decolonize not only our language, but how we even talk about um, label and label these issues, right? And we're not saying we have all the answers because a lot of this, I'm like, I don't know, right? Mm -hmm. I don't know how to... um, I don't know how to address a lot of these things because, and this is something we talk about in class, right? We need identity labels, right? To form um, community, but also for us to better understand ourselves. But we also don't want to have these identity labels limit our own perspective of ourselves and others, right? So I use the identity label black woman, right? But I don't want that label to have people limit their perception of me but I also don't want to limit my perception of that label for myself and I probably am speaking and you guys are like what is she saying um but I think that there's this article which I will link to I'll link the pdf on our resources page please check out that page your page has a lot of um for lack of a better word fruitful information on that page um and for each episode we post all of our resources there but there's this amazing article by dr keating and i'll just quote really quickly there's this one passage that really stands about stands out to me and it's about living with language where it looks as it looks as language as more than just um words on a page or words that are spoken um and it states that words have agency they aren't just passive tools for human agency. They can exceed us as they do in Anzal Dua's description of her writing process. And in this article, Anzal Dua describes her writing process as more of like a cyclical rather than a linear process. Um, and I think that viewing language as 
also this cyclical factor where it's not just words that we say, right? And they do not just stop there, but they go beyond us, right? But they also go within us. And there's like this cyclical process of language can better help us understand the limits of language, but also the expansiveness of language mm-hmm. as well. And I think if you think of language in that in that retrospect or perspective, then you understand the power of the language that we use every day. Then you understand the power of the term white passing and all of the layers behind that term, right? You understand the power of model minority, right? And all of the layers behind that term, you understand the power of diversity and inclusion and all of the layers behind that term, whether that layers be the limits of the term or the strengths of the term. Because I like to think of each term having its limits and having its strengths. Um, and mm-hmm. I think within seeing the limitations and the strengths, we can create more inclusive spaces within those labels or within that language and within those um, identity labels to be more um, inclusive of others that do not meet like the the our societal's limited perspective. Yeah, that I just wanted to add uh, really quickly. It's uh intersectionalities episode 45 in case anybody wants to check that out um i double check that but i i absolutely agree ricky and i think that it allows us to move beyond those labels and Mm -hmm. also critique the systems and structures of oppression that that kind of force those labels on us and keep it in in place um but it also like it forces us to reckon with what that labeling what that language has done um and we cannot dismantle it or like decolonize it. I know a lot of people don't like that term, but like we can't do any of those processes or even begin those processes until we address these issues in the first place and look at the designations these labels have placed. And like you said, I think it's really important what you said about like designating this label of like a black woman where like, or like labeling yourself or calling yourself a black woman, not even labeling yourself, but just like acknowledging yourself as a black woman. I think that is really powerful because, um, Yes, like in many ways, society, like it's it's kind of like white passing. Everybody's interpretation of that term is going to be different and whether they give you that designation or what that means for them and those stereotypes that they then re- replicate on you, um, that they kind of continue that is, it's definitely has an individual element to it, but it is very important to kind of like reclaim that and take that back and be um, like labeling itself is not bad. The language itself is not negative the designations and the problematic elements that come with it or what need to be dismantled, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and I'm glad that you cleared that up. We're definitely not saying that, like we said, we need language to navigate life, right? We need identity to navigate um, life and understand ourselves. It's just, I feel like, is this the best term? A holistic view of of the language that we use seeing like that yeah all the all the dimensionalities to the languages that we use and and not having language just be part of the set process and stopping there but um like we said we would love to for everyone to check out our resources page we're going to link to all the articles we mentioned and if you have any questions or have any thoughts, um, as always, you can DM us or leave a comment on our Instagram post. Uh, we love getting comments on our Instagram post as a way to engage with our community and kind of extend the conversation about language and identity politics. 
um, outside of this episode. Um, so we love getting your questions and I feel like we're we're two like bookworms. We love getting questions and then finding like research and books to mm-hmm. answer those questions. So please feel free to stay in contact with us um, in any way and in, in any um, in any of our platforms. Um, we would love to engage in conversation with with those listening. Yeah, absolutely. Well, everyone stay safe. We hope you enjoyed this episode and we will talk to you again next week. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. We appreciate your support. You can continue to show your support by giving the podcast five stars and by following us on our website, graymatterstheblog.com. That's gray with an A and on Instagram, as well as sharing and commenting on our posts on at graymatterstheblog. We want to connect with our Gray Matters community. That's you, our listeners. So if you have a comment or inquiry about customizable trainings and workshops, email us at graymatterstheblog at gmail.com. Stay safe, everyone, and we will chat with you next week.